Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to Justice a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system. With me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I speak to Hannah Sheed, who is the chief executive of Trevi, an award-winning women's charity in Devon. Since 1993, Trevi has been providing safe and nurturing spaces where women in recovery can heal, grow and thrive. In the 27 years they've been operating, they have helped to transform the lives of thousands of women and their children. Hi, my name's Hannah, Hannah Sheed, and I'm Chief Exec at Trevi. So can you tell me what Trevi's all about? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we're a women's charity based here down in Devon, and we, we have a range of services for women, women and their families. The service that people are probably most familiar with um, would be our mother and child rehab, which we opened in, well, we're coming up to 30 years, so we've We've been working with women and children for 30 years in our rehab. We also have a women's centre and we've got, we recently opened a residential family centre. So lots of different services for women and children here in Plymouth. Okay, and I guess we should start, there'll be lots of people listening who sort of understand the background and the context of all of these services, but there'll be many people who don't. So could you sort of explain... um, what the problem is that you're trying to sort of fix, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we we have always been a service driven by by trying to meet unmet need where we see it. And certainly when we look at the at the residential, when and Trevi was the first, we were the first organization to open a residential service for women with children. So many people will know that a one effective intervention for people in recovery is to go to residential rehab, and people will be familiar with that model as a as a way of treating addiction. But prior to us opening, if a woman, if a mother went into residential rehab, there was nowhere for her children to go with her. So the children would either go with family members or go into the care system. And unsurprisingly, some of the outcomes for women weren't as good as they might have been if she'd have had her child in her care. So Trevi was opened as a as a centre where women could bring their children. Okay, so go through the recovery process with their children with them in a safe environment. 
absolutely, people. absolutely. So we've got a nursery on site. So the <clears throat> the children are looked after by our specialist nursery team whilst the women do their therapeutic programme. And we know that with addiction, especially when it comes to women, it's really about looking at that underlying trauma. So it's providing a safe space and a therapeutic programme to look at those underlying traumas. But crucially, whilst the children are still in their care and where where we need to support for the children and keep trying to keep that family unit together. So what you were saying happened beforehand was if a woman needed needed to recover from drugs and or alcohol, her child would be taken into care and potentially never seen again. Well, I say what happened beforehand, actually what still happens now is women that go into recovery, mothers that go into recovery, so many of them won't have their children with them and may not, it may not be a decision to permanently remove, but I think can sometimes an unintended consequence will be permanent separation because um, either the woman's outcomes in treatment aren't what they would have been because and I speak to women all the time Edwina who have gone into treatment centres on their own their child has either been in foster care or been with family members and they've been so they've not been able to do the underlying work because they're worried witless about their children or or distressed because they're missing their children I, as a mother I totally kept that an expression that we use is trying to set set families up for success And I think that sometimes the system as we know it creates opportunity for failure. So we we will have situations and we see a lot where a a woman has she's had a baby. She's in hospital. I've known cases where the mother has gone to court to hear the outcome for where her child will go. She's gone back to hospital and the child has already gone. So. We we have a system whereby separation sometimes when it happens can happen in a way that is very harrowing for the mother and the child. And what we're trying to do is, where possible, keep families together. And even though we work with many families where actually the outcome might not be they stay together, but we can look that child in the eye in 18 years and say, do you know what? You were given the best possible chance of staying within your family home. We can look women in the eye and say, we've done all we can to keep you together. And we give families that best possible chance of success. And I think that's really important. Okay, so you've got the Jasmine Mothers Recovery Centre, and that's yeah. correct me if I'm wrong. The residential rehab for mothers that's and children. That's our res rehab. That's right. Which some some of your listeners may know, formerly known as Trevi House. So that's that's okay. where we began. So that's now Jasmine Mothers Recovery, and okay. and we opened the Sunflower Women's Centre. Oh, we originally got some funding from the National Lottery, probably 2016, and again that more along that sort of pathway of where is there unmet need and somewhere where we really saw some gaps locally was around somewhere for women to get support. We had a number of women that would complete in our residential that weren't from the local area, maybe had come from London or Bristol, decided to stay locally to get support from us and to make a fresh start but then found there weren't any women only services in the city and we saw that as a gap so we got a bit of funding and we now have thanks to some more funding from the MOJ we've got a women's centre and it's beautiful it's a really beautiful building and we offer a whole range of services to women of all 
ages and all sorts of different backgrounds that come together in our women's centre, supporting one another and really making changes. I remember coming to the opening of that. Um, And just so listeners are aware again, you know, you've got the residential aspect, which is really important. But I think what you're saying is then once women are done in the residential part and they might need to sort of move on and go into sort of independent living, there is a real need for them to have a safe space to access information and maybe come together, have coffee mornings and support each other. So can you can you just describe a bit more exactly what goes on in the um, sort of community Sunflower Women's Centre? Absolutely, Edwina. And what's been really interesting is when, when we opened the Women's Centre, we also really really broadened our our remit and it whereas our residential was very much the primary issue was addiction not the sole issue but the primary one actually in our women's center we work with any woman with any issue that may be maybe causing her sort of challenges we will have some women that just come to us because they feel lonely so we'll come just to hang out and be around women. We will have other women that are um, have got issues around domestic abuse, in recovery from sexual violence. We see a lot of women who've got issues around mental health, especially um, since sort of the pandemic and some of the sort of the isolation women will have experienced. We have women that are wanting to do work around self-esteem. We have women that are perhaps have had previous contact with the justice system and are looking to sort of do rehabilitation and get back into um, whether it's work or education. It's such a, it's such a broad brush. Um, What we, and we offer a range, we have a series of training courses. So lots of the women will come in and they can come in and access our drop-in, which might be coming and just hanging out. And they, they quite like playing scattergrees and sometimes we do bingo. So lots of women connecting. And I think it's it's in, you can't really sort of overstate how powerful that can be. Women in a room, hanging out, having a laugh and being together. But then we do have the access to the courses where women can get a qualification and they can progress through the Women's Centre. Um, and yeah. we've had a number that have now, they've done their peer mentor training. And we've actually got Um, a couple of women that were once sort of users of our women's centre that are now working in the women's centre supporting other women so it's a real sense of progression because yeah I was just going to say when you were talking about them having fun and just having downtime I think we don't put enough importance on because there's so much talk about services and interventions and have they jumped through the requirements as set out by the court perhaps if they're on a criminal justice referral route and it's like are they having fun Are they building healthy relationships with each other? Are they just in a place where they're not being scrutinised, where they're not being asked to unearth every horrific thing that's ever happened to them, having parenting courses, you know? And I think that in itself is therapy. You know, we all need that. If we've had a hard week at work, we're like, oh, you just want some downtime to be with your kids, maybe be in the garden, you know? And it's really, really important. But it's interesting that that that's never really a measurable impact, is it? It's not, you know, it's just kind of sometimes looked over yeah I totally agree if you were to ask me to sort of think in my mind's eye about the women's centre I instantly think of 
when you walk in, there's always a group of women out the front, sort of chatting, laughing, maybe having a fag, just being together. Then you walk through and you go to the kitchen, which will be full of women making a cup of tea. And again, it's just just something. There's it's the power of connection that I think can be so powerful. And women, there's one of the women I was chatting to, and she did make me laugh. And she said to me that when she she's one of our peer mentors. And when she opens the door to a, a woman who's come to the Women's Centre for the first time, she will look her in the eye and she will say, congratulations, you've found us. You've made it here. <laughs> and it's this really beautiful, this idea that <laughs> to have made it to the Women's Centre. It's like not everyone finds this place. Congratulations. You're one of the lucky few. And I think there's something. Yeah. It's lovely. But I guess it's also, it's recognising that that's a backdrop against women are living life is hard for a lot of women at the moment life is hard for a lot of women in our city women come to us we see a lot of women um and we i just had a statistic come through yesterday that um one in two of the women coming through our women's center are reporting domestic abuse it's it, it's really, it's tough for women. And so there is a lot of laughter and a lot of connection and there's some really great stuff happening. But there's also a real need for services like this because some women, they have said they see the Women's Centre as a lifeline. And that's really important that a service like this is available for women and they can get that support because they need it desperately. Before I move on to um, pick up on that point, actually, and then, you know, about sort of what the city's doing and some of the things that um, might be happening, um, just to finish that off, so you've got Jasmine Mother's Recovery, which is the residential rehab for mums and children. Then you've got the Sunflower Women's Centre, which is the wraparound care in the community. But then you've also got the Daffodil Family Centre, haven't you? Can you tell me about that? Yes, I can, I can. So Daffodil, we... And again, this is about unmet need, trying to sort of not necessarily plug the gaps but seeing where there are gaps and looking at what we can do to help respond and one of the things that we were aware of as a charity was there wasn't much provision for families going through parenting assessments so it's it's a model that's used by the court whereby if you if there are concerns about a parent's um capacity to safely parent their child um they will sometimes look to undertake a residential assessment. So the parent and the child will go into a residential and then the parenting will be assessed by social workers in that residential placement. And in, in Plymouth, families were having to travel a long way for that assessment to take place. And that's again, that's not just working with families where um, there's addiction. That can be anything that will interrupt safe parenting. So... Um, parents with learning disability, maybe young parents, parents who um, have are still looked after children themselves, mental health. So that's sort of the whole range of issues that we know that can sort of interrupt safe parenting. And then the local provision, there were some real gaps. Families in Plymouth were having to travel a long way if they wanted a residential assessment. And I spoke to a, a barrister working in Plymouth and she said to me that she'd worked with a young mum with a learning disability who had never left the city before then needed a residential assessment and had to travel to Kent and the thought of this 
sort of this poor mum with a, you know, first time mum with a baby traveling all that way. So we thought, come on, let's see if we can provide something local for families in and around Plymouth. And actually we're supporting families um, down into Cornwall. And so we've sort of got a sort of a fairly sort of large footprint in the southwest, but it's trying to offer that support for families that need residential assessments. So when when you're sort of kind of going, right, this thing isn't here uh, geographically that needs to be here and you're happy to kind of get something up and going who do you go to and who gives you the money for that or who do you ask do you know what we were really lucky that we we put in a funding bid with the Tudor Trust actually to do a feasibility study and we did we were fairly sure there was a need but it was a there's a big sort of step to take. So we put in for um, some funding through Tudor Trust who funded a feasibility, which really gave us the evidence to say, yes, there is a need for this service. Um, but when you when you open a new, well, you know this, with sort of Hope Street, if you want to open a new residential, you you can't just sort of dip your toe in the water. You, you have to open it, don't you? So yeah, you yeah. have to secure a building, hire a staff team, and I have to say that, so we opened in January 2020 and we did this fantastic um, staff induction. We had three weeks, what a luxury, of no residents, nothing else to interrupt us, just three weeks. And it was led by um, psychologists to really think about what, do, how do we need to train staff around attachment, brain development, trauma, all of those things to make sure that we as a staff team felt really well equipped to support the range of needs coming through. Um, and then it was a bit of a case of, right, let's hope we're used and we're needed. And thankfully, we have been and we are. That moment when you have your staff trained up and you're like, OK, who's going to be the first woman who walks through the door? How did that bit work for you and, and who came from where and how? I will remember to the day I die, the first woman that came in through our doors and she came in through, um, parked out the back, walked down the garden pathway with little baby in, you know, your little car seat. Just, oh, it was just it, the sort of that feeling of you are our first, <laughs> our first family. And it was really, yeah, a very powerful moment. And I, I think they... It you can you can believe there's a need for a service and you and you set something up, but then there's always that slightly anxious, oh my goodness, what if we were wrong? Yeah, it's a bit like throwing a party. Is anyone gonna to come to my party? I always think, oh heavens, you know, how many of you know, you've got a staff team with mortgages to pay and like you say, they're all trained, really ready to go. And so those first few weeks and you also have to we've always been really clear that we we know what our, who our service is here to support and making sure that we still work with the right people who need the service. And we get that part of it right. Um, but, yeah, fairly soon we had a full house. But then, you know, life is life. I think we our first sort of residents arrived 
in sort of early February. And then in March, we were in a national lockdown. So it certainly was, <laughs> it's been a roller coaster ride, really, because life is sort of challenging enough running a new service to then throw in the midst of it a pandemic was, yeah, challenging, really challenging. And the team all had to work phenomenally hard, as they have across all the services. The last two years, they, yeah, they haven't taken their foot off the gas once. Yeah, that's amazing. And and I can't imagine how challenging that must have been. But um, what I'm interested in exploring a bit further with you is your relationship with the statutory services. So, um, yes, police, probation for those who are on the sort of criminal justice pathway. Um, but then also, you know, the city council and, and your local community, your neighbours. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that area and how it all works? Yeah, I mean, I think that we've... We've always, I think, sort of seen ourselves as a sort of service of the city. And so um, we when we when I look at the women's centre, we it's almost like we've got the building, but then services locally that sort of want or need to use it can come and be part of it. We have that women only space, but then come and use the space within it. So um, one of the first organisations to co-locate within the Women's Centre was probation. And I think, I don't think Plymouth is unique in that the current probation offices where women were attending are not particularly inspiring. And actually, if you are a, a woman going into those buildings, it, it's quite an intimidating place to go. And again, when we look at how do we set women up for success in our system, asking them to attend a place that they feel profoundly intimidated in probably isn't, <laughs> you know, yeah. getting it right. So being yeah. able, and what was lovely when we first started, when probation first started co-locating with us, what was really lovely was that they, um, they'd bring cake in and it just felt so natural that they'd come in on sort of their whatever day they I think it was a Wednesday was probation day and they'd bring in cake and the way that women then interacted with probation changed because of course it did that they're not in an oppressive building they're coming in feeling not threatened they're having a slice of cake and it created positive change and funnily enough I was talking to someone just recently who was saying how having her probation at the Women's Centre was such a game changer for her because what it then meant was that she found out some of the courses that were happening. She went on a, I don't know, some whether it was self-esteem, something like that, started to then understand her own experiences differently and some of the shame that she had lived with about being in the criminal justice system, that shifted. And now she's in a totally different place, doing amazing things. And how different that might have been if she'd have been in that quite oppressive probation building. Totally. And I think, you know, the other thing that's really important to point out is that it's also really nice for the probation officer to go to a nice space. You know, I think we forget, don't we, also that, you know, often probation officers particularly are not paid a great amount. They're given a huge workload. Um, they have an impossible task a lot of the time. And they're often in offices that aren't inspiring or maybe they also feel intimidated by. And actually for them to have a space where they can 
bring the best part of themselves to their job and start enjoying their job again is also really, really important and, and such a big element of success, you know, because we talk about the women so much and the children, don't we, quite rightly. But in order for any of our work and your work to be a success, it's really reliant on a healthy workforce. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think you're you're so right that you you want the the staff team to be able to feel that they're working in an environment that's valuing, that they are in a space where they can support women effectively. And to be able to do that then gives them that greater job satisfaction. So, yeah, really agree. Really agree. Um, and what about the police and how does that work? Because I think this is always um, an interesting but can be sort of quite difficult area of, you know, if a crime is committed on your property and you're not the police, but the police might need to be involved. And how do you manage that sort of delicate area? Dare I say it, we haven't really had many issues. We, we've got a, there's a lovely um, PSO. PSO standing for? Police support officers, is that right? Okay, yeah, exactly. She's just been lovely. I feel that the the police have got a good understanding of our agency. And so um, when we have had to get a bit of advice or support, they've been really sensitive in terms of whether they come in wearing uniform or not. And I, I feel that we've had a good relationship with them and thankfully haven't had... Um, and it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think... When we first started talking about having probation on site, understandably, we sort of had some conversations about sort of risk and risk management. And of course, you have to always be thinking about what are the risks and how do we make sure we keep this service safe? But then also the reality that most of the women we're working with, actually, when they're given a space that is respectful and respects them, they respect it. And I, the women look after our spaces, whether that's the women's centre or the residentials, because there's a sense of ownership and there is a sense of this is, yeah, <laughs> something that they want, they value and want to look after. So thankfully, we haven't had too much sort of need for contact with the police. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, it seems kind of obvious and a lot of the time we sort of know it. But again, it's it's like, you know, and we talk about this with prisons and sort of different places. I mean, you know, make somewhere nice. People don't want to destroy it. Um, and it's interesting, you know, try, tried and tested with people like yeah. you running the services that you do. You very rarely hear of people then destroying the lovely place that's been provided to them. You know, I'm sure, sure it happens occasionally in some places, but on the whole, it doesn't. And then the wider context, if you don't mind. So geographically, you're in Plymouth, and I don't know that area of the world particularly well. So could you sort of put into context then the sort of violence against women and girls sort of uh, landscape where you are and then maybe sort of some of the wider work that's happening that sort of impacts you and what you're doing, but isn't directly your work yeah absolutely um so i mean you you will probably be aware that last year there were plymouth had it's had, we've had a really difficult 12 months here in the city in august of last year there were the keem shootings where a 
a young man, he shot his mother. He went out into the street and he shot members of the local community, including a young child. It was horrific, Edwina, absolutely horrific, uh, just horrendous and traumatic, of course, for those involved, but for the that community, um, the very close-knit community, and then the wider um, people of Plymouth. So that really did um, have a massive impact on our city in August. And then in November, just as just literally as we were about to sort of the 16 days of activism against violence against women and girls, a an 18 year old girl, Bobby Ann McLeod, she was abducted and murdered. And I think that, again, it really sent shockwaves through the city and forced a lot of people to say, well, what's happening in our city? And how how safe is it to be a woman, to be a girl in this city? And I think it it's been really challenging. And I guess I've I've had one perspective as someone who's been part of service delivery, and I also am part of um the local domestic abuse sexual violence forum. And so I think I'm I'm lucky because I see all the good stuff that's happening and so that gives me one perspective but there's also the lived experience of women in the city and how it feels to be a woman in Plymouth and so it to Plymouth have responded um they've and I I feel um again it's a really difficult position but they've been courageous in my opinion Rather than trying to say this isn't the problem, it doesn't happen, they've said, right, let's set up a commission and let's understand the scale of this and let's, and at the heart of it, what what's the culture in our city and where does misogyny play a role in behaviours towards women and children, women and girls? So a VOR commission, a Violence Against Women and Girls Commission was established they, I think, maybe December, January, and they've been uh, set up to really look at, well, what do we need to do to make Plymouth a city that is safe, feels safe for women and girls? And it's a pretty sort of ambitious remit. And who are the sorts of people that would sit on that commission? Because that sounds like quite a sensible thing to do, doesn't it? Bring lots of experts together. Let's talk about this one specific issue. Um, so who would who would be who sits on that? Uh, so it um, it's chaired by a local councillor and there's quite a few different people from different sort of representation across the city have sat on it. And then loads of people have given evidence. So I gave evidence to the commission and I actually was able to um, make a short film with some of the women who we support um, in our services to then show that film um, to the commission. So really... And I think there's all probably always a tension with this stuff of how, because you could probably spend your life collecting evidence and hearing from people, but at some point you also then have to do something, don't you? Clearly, these services can be provided for women, these safe places uh, for them to go can be provided for women and their children. But ultimately, if we're not tackling violence perpetrated by some men against these women, we're actually not tackling the problem at all are we and you know as you know I've worked in this area as well for so many years and that always seems to be the big area for me that I just kind of go 
I'm just not sure anything's happening. Now I'll caveat that by saying I'm sure lots is happening, I'm sure. Um, it's just that I, considering I work in this area and have done for 22 years, I'm not bowled over by what's happening. Could you shed any light on maybe yeah, what is happening? To... <laughs> and I guess it's a sort of, I, I suppose there's two levels. There's the what's happening for, what's being put in place for those that have already perpetrated. And here in the city, we've got um, a great service called Ahimsa that work with perpetrators. So there's a programme of support and intervention working with perpetrators. But then there's the, well, what what do we need to do before we get to that place? Where's the preventative work? And actually, how soon does that start? And certainly, I think from my point of view, the more I sort of delve into this, and at the moment, it's this... Uh, I can't bear it, really. I've sort of been dragged into these murky waters of talking about pornography, which is just, you know, I don't want to have to, but we have to. That actually, that's a big part of it. The pornography that young people are, are accessing from an early age on their mobile phones, within schools, within homes, the attitudes that that will start to shape for our young people around how women are treated in our society that's the other big part of it and i i think we have to talk about that however sort of uncomfortable and deeply unpleasant it is we need to in that sense then are you saying that there is a little bit out there but on the whole certainly when it comes to the preventative work it's a bit lacking i think we're catching up would be my sense of it and i i think that the certainly when i look at what some of the the plans are around in plymouth from the sort of the vogue agenda prevention is absolutely at the heart of it and that's really good to see and i think that we as a sort of socially we're getting much better at thinking that part of it we're not just thinking about, well, what do we do? Where are the services for survivors? Which are so important, but we're now, what's that phrase? We're upstreaming. You know, we are thinking a bit more, well, how did we get into this in the first place? And all of this stuff does sit within that bigger context of how, what are the attitudes that men have towards women and how will they lead to, to violence against women and girls? And I know it makes people deeply uncomfortable and I think that those of us that sort of would have to sit there in meetings with good men and talk about those attitudes and behaviours but we've got to do it and we have to and we have to do it for the next generation coming up through we have to be I think a bit braver about some of these conversations otherwise we will have it terrifies me really that sort of what our teenagers are seeing and what they're thinking about sex and what what sex looks like because it's not sex it's violence against women and girls and unless we really stand up and say that we will have quite a damaged generation and it yeah it worries me it does well thank goodness there's people like Trevi around doing all the all the good work that you are um to give uh, listeners again a context of the scale of Trevi how many women and children do you work with a year roughly yeah roughly so probably at the moment it's around 700 so we have um probably about 25 30 families come through Jasmine 
we probably have another 20 or so go through Daffodil. And then in the Women's Centre, we have lots of women on the books. Yeah. And the Women's Centre, again, that's, you know, because it's not residential. Am I right in saying it sort of is like a nine to five sort of operation? Yeah, yeah. And you never know day to day how many people or who might come through the door. No, it's we've, we've got all our courses and women sort of come in and out, depending which courses they're on or if they're coming in to drop in. And we recently got some funding from Tampon Tax to run an out of hours service. So we've got an out of hours outreach that we that started oh probably February time. And what we're trying to do with that service is plug again, plug in the gaps, trying to recognising that some of the women we work with that are particularly vulnerable and maybe their lives have a bit more chaos getting to services that do run that Monday to Friday, nine to five, just isn't possible. So we've got a team of assertive outreach practitioners that are working whatever hours are needed to help navigate women into services and support women where they need support, when they need support. So we've got a year's funding from the tampon tax and I'm quite excited about what we might be able to do in terms of developing a blueprint or a model for working with the women who we know need the services but seem so far from them well listen thank you so much we'll put the details of trevi on the podcast notes if anyone wants to sort of be in contact or see more about um the work that you do but thank you so so much thank you links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below if you enjoyed listening we would love it if you would subscribe Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.